640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I started out laughing because Josh, our technical director in the other room, couldn't see me to actually let me know that we were on the air. So he was waving behind my producer Joey's head. And it was fun watching the guys dance. That's what it was fun doing. Uh, so I'm here with you. It's Sunday afternoon. For those of you who don't know me, I have a PhD in clinical psychology and an obsession with human mating because it's the root of everything we do. And uh, today, but I talk about everything to do with psychology and relationships and stuff happening in the news. Um, I would be remiss if it did, I did not spend some time talking about fathers today. I swear, even my stumble there was because just saying that word, I don't know what's up with me today. But I woke up this morning. Do you ever have that feeling that you have kind of tears behind your eyeballs, but they're not connected with any thoughts? Well, if you're a chick, I don't, Joey, have you ever had that experience as a guy? Like you feel you're going to cry, but you're like, why am I sad? I'm not sad about anything. Um, no, you've never had PMS, I guess? Yeah, okay. not so much. No. <laughs> One of these days, maybe. You know. I don't know if it's just a female thing or not. Although in a minute, we're going to play Dennis Rodman crying. So he obviously has that feeling too. Um, and I'm like trying to like think it out because I'm so analytical. Like, is it related to this? Is it related to that? Is it, but it could, it, nothing is coming up. So I'm wondering if unconsciously it's just the whole Father's Day thing. You know, my parents died many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, uh, in one year, when I was 30, I became an orphan. <laughs> kind of weird. You're not really an orphan when you're 30, but... I felt that way when you're, hey, if you're 50 and your parents die, you feel like an orphan. Um, and if I could say the feelings I have for my dad, in one word, longing. I think I had the absolute best dad in the world, but darn it, he was in the Navy. So he was gone. He would come home and try to make up for it by being the best dad in the world. But most of the time, he was this person who was gone and I used to write letters on this thin airmail, like tissue paper letters to him. Uh, there's no phones, no cell phones. Every once in a while, we get a ham operator call to the house. But then the whole Navy was listening. So they'd always be like, don't say anything personal. Uh, all right. So I'm going to be talking about fathers a little later. Uh, I also have a neuroscientist coming in to talk about the value of neurofeedback if you suffer from anxiety, depression, even ADHD, AD, ADD. Um, and later, can we talk about really your success? I don't mean what the world thinks you should be success-wise. I mean how to self-define success. Is happiness the new rich? Is inner peace the new success? Is health the new wealth? I'll talk about that at the end of the show. All right, but first, there's a big relationship in the news. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, they're having a dating relationship. It's the beginning. They had their first date Right. And I, I, you think I'm making light of it, but there are many similarities. Unfortunately, their first date was very public. It would almost be like a first date on The Bachelor where you've got cameras in all of America watching you at the same time. But I watched the video very, very closely because I'm fascinated by this. I do believe that Donald Trump may be an unlikely envoy who may be able to extend that olive branch to this young leader. And when I think about Kim Jong-un, remember, this guy is a different generation. And if you look at the atrocities, and I don't want to dismiss the atrocities and how he's run his regime, but remember, he was a youngin in his 20s when he came into power, and he had a bunch of old guard around him who continued in their ways. 
And maybe now that he's in his 30s, and maybe he killed off all the, the old guard in many ways, uh, and maybe he's trying to make a change. I'm always fascinated by people's developmental years because so much of us is formed in those early years. And he went to boarding school in Switzerland. Now, don't tell me for one minute that he wasn't programmed or influenced by Western thought by spending his adolescence living in Switzerland. So I have high hopes for this. I did have a giggle, though, because uh, there was a moment where I was quite sure that Donald Trump hadn't studied much on uh, cultural sensitivity. Did you see that they were about to sit down to a big luncheon and the cameras were shooting them as they were about to sit down? And Donald Trump said to the cameraman, hey, make sure we all we all look handsome and we look thin. And there's a little time lag as the translator translates that to Kim Jong-un. And then there's this look of like, what the F? I, I, it's the funniest thing on I his saw, face. He just looks stupefied. He's like, Dumbfound. what did this he say? Really just say that. Because you have to understand when you come from poor countries, being called thin is not a compliment. You know, they literally say, mothers will say, I want my children to grow up fat as a compliment. You know, we, we, it's an American ideal because we have this, you know, backward food culture here. And we have so much obesity, not because of behavior. I'm blaming it on our food industry, folks. It gets us addicted to carbohydrate. Uh, but so we think fat is a bad thing. And so he just used that and Kim Jong-un looked hysterical. Now. Also, there's a third party in this little, you know, the person who fixed them up on this date, uh, the, another unlikely person, Dennis Rodman. And uh, I, I, I have a little personal, later in the show when we talk about where we get our own self-esteem from, I, uh, I love a quote from Quincy Jones. When somebody asked him when he turned 70, what was the best part about turning 70? Quincy Jones said, oh, the best part is getting to see how it all turns out. Now, I am nowhere near 70, but I love watching how life turns out, and that's part of how I self-define. Like, I have this voyeur's look at people. So you should know, back in the 90s, I was hosting a show called Extra. Yes, Extra, Extra. And um, I did a day in the life of Donald Trump. At the time, he was married to Marla Maples. He was building Trump Tower, I believe, because I remember riding up a shaky construction elevator that was terrifying, a million floors with him and clutching to him for safety. And then we flew in his chopper to Atlantic City to go through his casinos. And, you know, he was a perfect public personality. He, he didn't sexually harass me. I mean, any more than anybody ever would if you were in a short skirt in the 90s. Uh, you know, I, I didn't find anything weird there. Just he was a good performer. He did ask questions like, what are your ratings like? How many eyeballs am I going to get on this? Right. And it was all that was all important to him if he was going to give up a day of his life. And then unrelated years before that, I was I can't believe I'm going to say this sentence. You should know that I don't just learn from books. Most of the wisdom I have in life came experientially. I might read it in a book and then go, yeah, but I still want to touch the fire just to see how hot it is. So when I was anchoring the news here on KCOP UPN years ago, I would go off air at 10 p.m. hair and makeup ready in Hollywood. You know what that means. I was on the list of every nightclub possible. And sometimes there'd be like a Tuesday night, there'd be nowhere to go out. And I would go out to um, anything that was open. So one night I was in the back VIP room of a lesbian strip club. In West Hollywood. And there I met Dennis Rodman. I, I swear. I spent a long time chatting with him. I actually kissed him. I know. Oh, it's oh, weird days. Hang 
Dennis, you and Dennis Rodman? Yes. Uh, he didn't have that thing in his lip back oh, then. Oh, he always have a lip ring, right? Yeah, he, he's got a bunch of stuff. What club was yeah. this at? I don't remember. even remember. I don't remember the name of the club. I just remember that. So now I watch the two of them in South Korea, and I'm like, oh, my God, I need to meet Kim Jong-un. And then I can be part of the whole Bachelor reality show there as we it. watch this date continue. Uh, all right, when we come back, I have a special guest. Let's start talking about the men I love more than anything in the world, fathers. And I have a special guest who will be talking to us about how why you guys need to take your paternity leave. It'll help us all. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I want to wish a happy Father's Day to every dad out there. And I heard a statistic this morning that there are 2 million fathers in America raising children without a partner. Literally, full-on, full-time, 100% custody, single dads. And uh, especially, I send you my love today. And I used to think that, you know what? Dads, men aren't really wired like women are. And, you know, I worry a little bit about men taking care of babies and all that. How dare I have such sexist thoughts, right? Well, uh, guess what I've learned? That the way to get dads to be better dads, oh, is to give them babies. Yeah, there's actually research that a man's brain becomes more maternal the more time he spends with a child. Um, And there is research to show that there's an increase in activity in the amygdala and other emotional processing systems, causing men to experience parental emotions not unlike mothers. So in other words, see, all our psychology is our biology reacting to the environment. And we change based on environmental pressures. So maybe it's our not-so-father-friendly practices that have made men seem to us to be a little less maternal. So I have a special guest on the line who has been on a campaign for a few years, and he will continue so, uh, and the world will change to try to get more men to take paternity leave when it's offered and try to get more companies to give paternity leave so that we can help moms. Josh Levs, author of All In, is with me now, one of my favorite dads in the world. Happy Father's Day, Josh. Thank you so much, Wendy. And I love all the great pro-dad stuff you're saying. It's so true. Okay, so first of all, I just want to start off with the bad news. We really don't have paternity leave in America, right? Right, right, exactly. We have, we have the law, the Family and Medical Leave Act, right. which will protect a mother or a father, protect their job for up to 12 weeks <clears throat> unpaid. And men rarely take it or any of it because they don't want to lose the income. Yep. Yep. Here, so yeah, I mean, tell us your story it, it, briefly so that sure. people remember who you are. Oh, sure, absolutely. So I was a reporter uh, first on NPR and then on CNN. Uh, 10 years each, and I was a fact checker at CNN, and I started covering parenthood, and then I um, I had a a legal battle. uh, Well, wait, first, you delivered your own baby because it came out too early. I've heard the 911 call. (laughs) And then, because your baby and mommy were in hospital after this, you went to your employer and said, hey, uh, I got got to be there to take care of them. And it was your second, second child, right? 
Right. Well, actually, she was my third. So I, I went to the hospital. I, I went to the, the company way in advance. We looked at what was going on in our family. We saw that I would be needed at home for caregiving after mm-hmm. my daughter was born. And I knew that that's normal now because dads do this, as you mentioned. Uh, but the policies hasn't kept up with it. And, and back at CNN, the policies allowed anyone 10 paid weeks to care for their new child, except a biological father after you know his own wife gave birth. Okay, and we should say clearly that because of the lawsuit, Time Warner and CNN has changed all their policies, right? They made it much better, and you know it was very successful that way. The big goal that I had was to get them to change the policy. They did, and they tell you the same thing. It was a win-win. Mm-hmm. See, this, when you make the policies better, it's better business, it's better for moms, and it's better for dads. And this is why we're all on the same team, because all of this stuff that we're dealing with comes from madmen thinking that yeah. women should stay home and men should stay at work. And when you don't let men stay home, you don't let women stay at work. <laughs> so yeah. we have to fix that. Well, I'm sure you know about this study. A study released from the Peterson Institute for International Economics found that countries with mandatory maternal leave didn't have more women on those countries' corporate boards. However, when countries had more generous paternity leave, they had more women on corporate boards. Explain that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Sweden found that... uh, for every month a man takes, women's uh, salaries can go up by 7%. So here's what happens. Okay, if you have a set of structures that make it so that only women are caregivers, then people are more reluctant to hire women because they think these women are going to drop out for a longer time. Mm-hmm. And you are leading families to have no choice. When the man cannot stay home and you want someone home, the woman always ends up staying home. And then you end up with that same madman imbalance. But when you change the system so that anyone can be a caregiver, businesses can't predict whether the man or the woman is going to stay home, so they don't worry about that reluctance. And you're giving families choices, so they look in their choices. And sometimes the mom stays home and then the dad stays home, or the dad and then the mom, or only the dad. And when those choices exist, families get to make their own decisions and you get more gender equity. More gender parity everywhere. Josh, can you hang around for another segment? And I want to take some calls because I want some other people to get in this conversation. I know that you, it's Father's Day. Are you being celebrated? Am I pulling you away from a Father's Day dinner table or anything? (laughs) No, you're not. We want to respect Father's Day all day. Okay. 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 Hang in there. Um, After this break, I want to take some calls as well. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. If you'd like to call in and jump in on this conversation, call one 800 5201KFI. That's 1 800 5201KFI. Have you had a problem taking paternity leave or have you taken it with no problem? Give us a call 1 800 520 1534. This is Dr. Wendy Walsh showing KFI AM640. Larry Perel has the news. KFI AM 640, Papa was a Rolling Stone. As we're continuing with our Father's Day conversation, you're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Uh, If you have had an experience with your company where you wanted to take time off as a dad, or you wanted your husband to be able to take time off, and you ran into a brick wall, or you've been able to do it and want to sing the praises of your company, we would like to hear your story. So give me a call at one 800 5201KFI. That's 1 800 1534. My guest, Josh Levs, is the author of a book called All In 
where he has become, I would call you the leading world expert on gender parity in terms of both parenting and workplace uh, workplace roles. So, Josh, um, you came to my mind this week because there's a new study that you came out with. Yes. Yeah, we have this new study. It's from Promundo and DubMed Plus Care, which is a company I partner with on this stuff. And it shows the kinds of things that I've talked to you about. It shows that there's so little support for dads in the workplace, not just with paternity leave, but in general. So three quarters of the dads who were interviewed for this said that there's very little support for them. And, you know, even the places that have paternity leave in general, when it's there, men don't take it because they're legitimately afraid that if they do, they'll get punished for it. Mm -hmm. And in our survey, one in five guys said that they think that they fear that if they take their paternity leave, they'll get fired. And you can read more about it on on my LinkedIn. But Well, I like to always throw in when people spout statistics like that. Okay, guys, now you know what it feels like. Because we have yeah. the same fears. You know, both right. times I was hiding my pregnancy. I didn't want anyone at work to know. I was experiencing the biggest joy in the world. And I was hiding it under baggy clothes because I was so afraid I would be fired. And you know what's crazy is that, like, so, you know, I come at this as a fact checker, right? And all these years covering businesses and working on businesses. And I, I run my own businesses now. It is a fact that parents can be just as great employees after they become parents as they were before. Isn't that and crazy? really, when you fix these policies, you actually attract and retain in the war for talent. And I show companies how they actually make more money when they choose to offer these kinds of benefits, which is why some places are starting to do it. And so the fear that you had and the fear that other people had, the, the battle that I had to fight and the, the legal case, all of this should not exist because when you look at the facts and the numbers, you discover that we, if businesses and society and government, if all of us will just address this through some really simple steps, then we can solve it and we can keep people in the workforce. And that's the goal here. You know, like let's keep growing the economy and supporting families at the same time. And I think some of the more socially forward thinking new tech companies are making some strides. I saw a quote today from Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, saying that mm-hmm. many of their male employees say that they were attracted to the company specifically because of their uh, generous paternity leave. I think they allow yeah. any parent of any gender to take up to a year off. Um, um, yeah, well, and, and pay, and also four months pay from Facebook. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. because Cheryl, Cheryl's in my book, and you know what's really wild? When I interviewed her for all in, she told me that she also has women who tell her that they want to work at Facebook because of its support for fatherhood. And I speak at business schools. I keep finding the same thing, that savvy young women want to work at companies that support paternity leave because they know – that a place that supports men as equal caregivers genuinely wants to support women exactly. as equal employees. Yeah. This is what people are figuring out. It's the secret so, sauce there. Um, stay on the line, Josh. We have a caller. Yeah. You know, one of the things that is common that men are now facing as they step into the shoes of some women is if they do want to be good dads and they want to have some kind of part-time work or job sharing, it's even harder for men to get those kinds of jobs because most of the part-time work tends to be traditionally female-oriented, childcare, waitressing, etc. We have a caller who's actually had that problem. Hi, Chris from Thousand Oaks. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, how's it going, Dr. Wendy? I'm going to turn my radio off real quick. Okay, thank you. Um, hang, on, hang on a second. Can you hear me? Yeah. So you're a stay-at-home okay. dad? Yeah, so my deal is uh, I've... I'm a product developer and mechanical engineer. Basically, if you have anything that needs to be designed, I'm the guy that designs it, prototypes it, and occasionally 
produces it for manufacture. Wonderful. And um, it's been a very challenging field with a lot of stress. So my wife and I have been trying to have, have children for a long time. And when we were finally lucky enough to be blessed with our daughter, I decided, you know, I had a flexible enough career to pretty much go gung-ho watching her during the day while my wife's at work. Mm-hmm. So it's been the most rewarding experience of my life. She just turned one year old. Oh, um, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Oh, and happy Father's Day. Oh, yeah, it's my second one, so that's kind of cool. Oh, that's so great. So do you supplement your income with any part-time work? Oh, my God, it's so long. So let, 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 where do I start? So as a machinist, like when I have work, it's, it's feast or famine. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I often get very big jobs, and then sometimes it'll go quiet. So how I supplement it is I do uh, what's called retail arbitrage, where you – go to different stores and purchase things on clearance and then liquidate them through eBay or other means. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been pretty lucrative. So Well, good for that. you because plenty of moms have built whole careers on eBay and Etsy. Yeah, and, and for me, the biggest challenge is as a guy, I don't really communicate a lot. You know, I don't really talk about, like, every action I do. So I find myself um, trying to take my daughter as many classes as I can to be involved in music classes and other uh, – activities where she gets to meet other babies and i've met quite a few um really concerned and very caring moms um that i'm really well, uh, i'm glad to know, hear that and i want josh with, to so. pipe in with some yeah. advice for you but i have had men complain that they get ostracized by the mommy network oh, at yeah. the parks it's, it's definitely <laughs> true it's yeah. definitely true i mean when i walk into a playground my daughter and i'm not just saying this to brag but people will come up to us and say she's like the cutest kid you've ever seen I'm sure and she is. Here I am holding the cutest kid you've ever seen, and it's like I have a virus or something, and the women... Um, they treat <laughs> you like a creeper. So, Josh, yeah, you, you so, did some stay-at-home. Yeah. Let Josh mm-hmm. Levs give you a little bit of advice, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like everything's going hunky-dory for you, but I'll tell you to everybody else who's listening who, who, who has you know challenges in these respects. First of all, um, I wrote entire chapters about this. We raise our children with a fear of men. And that ends up affecting the way we see everything, including childcare. So all of us, I've had it, all dads I know have had it. You go to the playground and people think that, like, you must be a kidnapper, even though you're there with your <laughs> own daughter. And in my book, the, the woman who is probably the number one child safety official, the woman who's the head of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, she agrees with me that we should stop telling kids, if you get lost, find a mommy with kids. She says, you know what, it's time to tell kids, if you get lost, Find a parent with kids because kids need to grow up learning not to have this fear because then we won't ostracize men. And when our men are ostracized, they're less likely to stay home. They're less likely to take on that role. And as for supplementing your income, um, it is very tough and it is tough for a lot of guys. And last week I did an event at Carnegie Hall in New York and we announced the survey. And we also had a panel. And one of the panelists was from an organization that's called Third Path. It's one word, Third Path. And they mm-hmm. specifically work with guys and women, um, but, you know, I was talking talking to them about guys, to help them find part-time work in all kinds of different fields. And they work with employers to help employers understand how lucrative it is for them to get these guys and their talent. So if you want to work 10 hours, 20 hours, or off hours, or weekends, or whatever, uh, there are organizations like Third Path that are helping make this happen is it, now, is and path, we need more of that. Third Path, P-A-T-H? P-A-T-H, yeah, thirdpath.org. Yeah. All right, they're wrapping us up. Chris, Chris and Josh, thank you so much for being with me. Um, Josh, always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, When we come back, 
I'm sure your dad had lots of dumb dad jokes. I want to hear them. Or maybe your dad gave you really good advice that you think you should share with the world. Give me a call, 1-800-520-1534. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And we're talking about dads. Do you have good memories of your dad? If so, give me a call. 1-800-520-1534. That's 1-800-520-1KFI. So I mentioned that my dad, like all dads, <laughs> was the best dad in the whole world. But because of his career, he was in the Navy. He was gone more than six months a year. And so as a young girl, and I was the only girl, I had brothers on either end of me being very aggressive. I used to say that all they ever, all I ever did was get beat up by my brothers. Uh, and so I had this feeling always of longing. But when he came home, he was a man of few words. He was very much a diplomat. And he showed his love physically. For instance, as a young woman, whenever I got a new apartment, he always showed up and built me a bookshelf that fit into some little nook. Like he, he would build it from the ground up. He wouldn't like go to Ikea and buy me a bookshelf. He would buy the wood and build it right in my living room. And uh, so that was the way he physically showed his love. But I do have to say he came from, you know, a kind of conservative Catholic family. And during my teenage years, you know, dads, a lot of them have those dumb jokes. When uh, I was experimenting with fashion, I modeled and everything. And, you know, that crazy street fashion that teenagers wear. And every time I would come down the stairs in some outfit... I would hear my dad, oh, Halloween again when? Oh, my gosh. If I hear that one more time, I would roll my eyes. Halloween again? He always made fun of my clothing. So I don't thank you for that, Dad. Uh, But I do thank you for the great advice. I remember the time I got my first car, and I saved up a lot of money. It was a Sunbeam. Anybody know what that was? That was a Maxwell Smart car. It was an old one. In fact, the engine had died long ago and someone had taken it out and put a Ford Pinto engine in it. And I had saved up my hard-earned money cocktail waitressing and working at stores. And I had $1,500. And we went the morning to pick up the car. We'd already done the deal. The guy's house who was selling it, who had fixed it up. And the guy who was selling it to me was totally hungover, like shaky, red-eyed, drunk still, kind of. And we were there early on a Saturday morning. And I remember he tried to raise the price. He was grumpy. He was bitching at us. And my dad was just like this elegant gentleman. He didn't argue with the man about the price. He just said, I hope you can understand. This is my daughter's hard-earned money. And I believe we had a deal. And this is her $1,500 cash. And that's all she will be paying for the car this morning. And he was just so elegant. And he kept almost apologizing. I'm sorry if we came early. I'm sorry if this isn't the deal you remember. I'm sorry, whatever. And he was such a role model for me in that way, for being diplomacy. Um, Since nobody's calling in with your good dad stories, I've got some uh, other dad stuff to tell you. The number, by the way, is 1-800-520-1534. You know, because we put so many men in America in the man box, where we really limit uh, your range of masculinity, We put men into this box that says, you're not supposed to show your feelings. You're not supposed to be paternal. You're not supposed to 
um, be monogamous even. You're supposed to take any sex because that's all cool, right? Um, there are men now who are really, really, really evolving. If you go to like a new neighborhood like Playa Vista, I was there for uh, to see Incredibles last night. There are so many baby-wearing dads and pushing in stroller dads. It's just, it's like a whole new world. You've got this new development filled with newly developed dads. <laughs> it was just beautiful to see. But sometimes men will ask me, you know, what does it mean? Maybe I didn't have a father who was around. Maybe I didn't have a good father. What can I do that my children will really remember? And you know what? Your kids actually want the most expensive thing you have, which is your time. Just be present for your kids. And if you have to make a choice sometimes between working or being present, if it's an important time, an important game that your child is in, a sports activity, an important performance, a parent-teacher conference, you might want to make the choice to put your kid first and buy them less. And I know it's difficult, as, as we were saying with Josh Lev's, workplaces aren't used to men marching in and saying, I'm sorry, I need the afternoon off to attend my kid's Christmas pageant or whatever it may be. But you will be the pioneer. You'll be the one who will actually take that risk and do that. When you're speaking to your kids, speak positively about them and to them. Because critical voices live in their heads forever. Towards the end of my show, I'm going to be talking about how you can define your own success as an adult. And if you're battling those critical voices of your parents, it makes it very, very difficult. And dads, don't forget to say I love you a lot. And don't be afraid to show your emotions to your family. The last thing I want to say to men out there, because this is so important, the best way to be a good dad is to have a good relationship with your wife or partner because you are modeling love for them. You are creating a blueprint for love that goes into the heads of your children that they will go out and seek adult romantic partners and will behave the same way. So on that note, I want to say happy Father's Day once again to all the fathers out there. When we come back, I have a neuroscientist in studio who's going to talk to us about the value of neurofeedback. If you've never tried it before, you're going to want to listen up. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. You know, I'm always, I love to feature different kinds of therapies that people use for their mental health. As I mentioned, um, I'm, I'm totally into this emerging area, some uh, psychiatrists out of Harvard, this nutritional psychiatry, that what we eat can actually create serotonin in our gut that can make us feel happier in our brain. That's one area. Uh, last week, we had a therapist on, Melody Anderson, who does a lot of body work, tapping EMDR. And so I, I love that, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was told, like, you know, your scope of practice is talk therapy. And you can't even ask a depressed patient at two in the afternoon what she's eaten so far today, because that's a nutritionist job. But now we're all of us, many clinicians um, are working as whole body people. I'm not a clinician anymore. I'm a teacher, but we think of the body as a whole. And so uh, one area of interest to me is an area called neurofeedback. 
and I have in studio here Susan Smiley. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hello, Wendy. Uh, and you practice neurofeedback. I do. And in a nutshell, can you explain to my listeners what it is? Sure. Neurofeedback uh, actually has been around for about 30 years. It's just, though, gotten better and better, So, it, and it's gaining traction out there. It's a, um, an alternative modality. In other words, there's no medication involved, nothing invasive evolve, involved, and it um, helps. It's brain training. People have heard of brain training. Yeah, your brain can be a kind of a muscle if you think of it that way. Well, our brains are plastic. Mm-hmm. They're, um, it's called neuroplasticity. And we know that as we learn, uh, the actual neurophysiology of our brains change. And so when you use neurofeedback uh, to help someone, um, you're helping them change their own brains. And in so doing, it's changing our, our various brain waves to be more in alignment and therefore we operate more optimally. In other words, folks who suffer from depression or anxiety, uh, people with ADHD, um, OCD, all kinds of mental health issues as well as neurological issues um, can be remedied with neurofeedback. It's really remarkable. Uh, And so tell me what ages, I mean, do you do children, adolescents, adults, who can benefit the most? Are, Are adults' brains plastic enough to really get the benefit? Absolutely, they are. Now, it's true that um, the younger the brain, the more adaptable it is. However, our brains are changing, honestly, till the day we die. Uh, research is telling us this. Yeah. I always say that, you yeah. know, psychology is just our biology meeting the environment. And it's constantly shape-shifting basic, based on the requirements of the environment. But also, we come with a genetic predisposition. So there are some people that are just prone to depression or just prone to anxiety because that's their genetic predisposition. Now, the environment can suppress that tendency or enliven that genetic potential. And it sounds like neurofeedback can be the environment that helps suppress. Well, that's a good way to put it. Neurofeedback is offering a, um, you might say, a mirror for the brain to actually see itself through a, um, a device. Um, but the brain, as it sees itself, as if you're, um, you that, give you an analogy. Say you're walking down the street and you're looking in a, a, a window of a store and you see a reflection of yourself and you notice that you're hunched over and you make an adjustment and you stand up straight. Our brains are doing the exact same thing with neurofeedback. You know, that's why they have mirrors at the gym. Exactly. And I know you just mentioning that, and I sat up straighter right there. <laughs> so once we get that signal that, oh, um, something's a little off, and I can, uh, I can be functioning more optimally if I just change this or change that, our brains are doing exactly that with neurofeedback. And so um, by doing that, we um, feel better. And, and so whether there's a predisposition for depression or it's due to, say, a, a, a situation, I'm getting divorced, you know, something terrible happened, what have you, neurofeedback will... What do we call that? An adjustment disorder. Right? Exactly. <laughs> We're um, always adjusting to something. You know, when, I'm, uh, when I was in private practice and I, had, I hated to put diagnoses on insurance forms because I just think... There's so much stigmatism around mental health and diagnoses. And so I had a supervisor once who used to say, just always put an adjustment disorder because they're always adjusting to something new in life. (laughs) Well, the truth is we are every second. Our bodies are, uh, as you say, are getting signals from the environment and our physiology 
as well as our brain physiology, is making adjustments to handle that. Exactly. uh, Those signals and those cues. So explain for us a step-by-step how a session of neurofeedback works. Do you work with a computer, headsets? Explain it. Sure. Um, Well, yes. Uh, Neurofeedback is basically EEG biofeedback. A lot more people have heard of biofeedback. And we do use a computer interface meaning I am looking at an EEG screen on a computer of that person's brain waves. However, um, sensors are, are uh, affixed to the head with some conductive pace like you would happen with you're getting an EKG in, mm-hmm. in the hospital or whatnot. And those simply pick up our brain waves and those are run through this computer and then back to the brain. And so it's actually a completely subconscious experience. You're awake. I want my client awake, watching a video game or playing a game or listening to music. I want their brain alert because the brain needs to be alert in order to train right. If the brain is asleep, which people might fall asleep or be have a tendency to, um, then it's not going to be as effective. Because they're going into those different waves. Well, they're being calmed. At its very essence, neurofeedback helps calm a nervous system and calm Mm. a brain. And you'd be amazed by how many mental um, health and physical issues are caused by anxiety and a Mm -hmm. hypervigilant system. Yeah. So as we're calming that system, a lot of issues just kind of fall away and we become more resilient. We become stronger and more capable of handling the world around us or handling our marriage, or our cranky kid, or something or other, and we become way more resilient. And um, how many sessions, and how long does a session last? Well, clinical minimum, a recommended minimum of neurofeedback sessions is twenty-five sessions. Because and in how frequent? Like, does it wear off after a whole week, or do you have to go two, three times a week? You'll notice as uh, you keep continue doing sessions, it lasts longer and longer. The efficacy. Oh, so at the beginning, long. you want to go every other day or something? And then no, I would say two to three times a week is recommended for X number of weeks, say, um, you know, 10 weeks or so. Um, but we are analyzing constantly along the way uh, because people notice results really quickly. Now, oftentimes, the changes that are happening don't hold until you've been doing more neurofeedback. However, the, um, by the time you get done with your course, things have been resolved. In other words, someone might be having, say, sleep problems, and they're suddenly sleeping better after they start neurofeedback. But um, it won't be until they do um, more and more sessions will that sleeping really change. Be really, really consistent. And for lifelong. I mean, with neurofeedback, we're looking for enduring sustainability of results. And that's why uh, clients cycle out once they're all better and I don't see them again, unlike seeing a doctor with for more medication or to change the medication. It is a modality that gets you better and keeps you better. It's it's really okay, remarkable. When we come back, I want to talk about that since so many people are already on medication, how neurofeedback can help some of them get off medication even, and um, talk specifically about some of your patients that you can talk about, obviously, uh, and what your results have been. I am with uh, neuroscientist Susan Smiley, who uh, does neurofeedback, and uh, we'll have more from Susan when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news.
640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I am with neuroscientist Susan Smiley of thebalancedbrain.com. Thebalancedbrain.com. And Susan, we're talking about neurofeedback and how successful it can be. But people have to be compliant. They got to stick through the 10 weeks and they got to stick through going two or three times a week, right? To make it work. They do. It requires you to show up. Basically, you have to show up uh, two or three times a week. I've only had one experience as a patient during neurofeedback. I was I was in the CNN green room one time, and I always meet really interesting people in the CNN green room. And I run into this guy. I'm like, so what do you do? And he goes, well, I have a moderate drinking management program. I'm like, what? Like, my head is spinning. And I'm like, moderate drinking? I thought the AA people said nobody can be a social drinker if they're an alcoholic. He goes, well, it depends. You know, there are a lot of people that are just biologically addicted to alcohol, and it's the habit more than them using it to hide uncomfortable feelings. And I said to him, well, you know, I've had a glass of wine or two every night with dinner for 25 years, and I would like that to be three times a week. Could you help me? And he said, why don't you come in and, you know, do the program with us? And part of it involved neurofeedback. And so they hooked me up with all the sensors. They had me look at this computer screen. It was the most bizarre thing. There was a squirrel on the screen. And I had to get the squirrel to do things. But the only way I could get the squirrel to do things was by calming my brain. Mm-hmm. It was like reverse. Mm-hmm. It was so bizarre. And the more I would calm my brain, the faster the squirrel would go, wanting mm-hmm. to excite my brain, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was teaching, I don't know, a kind of control of one's brain. Does that make sense? What was happening? <laughs> Because your brain is being calmed by neurofeedback, it has less of a need for certain rewards, of which alcohol and drugs are a couple examples of of your brain being rewarded. Um, it's looking for something in those situations that it's not getting otherwise in within its um, internal system. So, um, yeah, it, it's in, neurofeedback is very effective for helping uh, alcoholics and people with addiction problems of any type. Get off whatever they're on. As a matter of fact, I recently was seeing a 20-year-old, a, a lovely man, young man, who um, actually started having some real nightmares and psychological issues after he started smoking pot a lot. Surprise, surprise, folks. <laughs> and um, he hadn't been smoking at all recently because he terrible nightmares were just torturous oh. for him. Um, and... Um, but once he started doing neurofeedback, he didn't even have a desire to do it with his friends anymore. Um, the nightmares resolved. His sleeping got back to normal. He got back together with his girlfriend, doing great in college. In other words, there's no was no longer a, a desire. It's um, fascinating how yeah. it works, how you can actually train your brain to function in a different way. But, mm-hmm. you know, Americans, they like to just take a pill and have everything be okay. And... I personally believe that too many psychopharms are prescribed in America, um, especially to kids and adolescents. So does your neurofeedback help people who are already on medication? I mean, you don't ask them to quit cold turkey for you. How do, how do you work? No. Um, no. And the truth is, I don't know how much Americans want to be taking the pills, but they're mm. given them. Yeah. Because that's the easy thing for doctors to do. Um, and so if they do neurofeedback... Um, they, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Uh, how do people get off their meds? Oh, using yes. Many people come in and say, I'm on these meds and that's part of my intake. I need to know what medications you're on. And I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not about saying you need to get off this or that. However, I work closely with doctors, with psychiatrists, 
um, to help that person titrate slowly off medication. The truth is their body is going to start feeling over-medicated when they start doing the neurofeedback because it's getting more regulated. They will need less. Their body will need less because it's getting more regulated and more in sync with itself. And so suddenly they're going to be like, gosh, this feels like too much. I'm more groggy than ever. I'm more, and if you look up the side effects of medications, when you're doing neurofeedback, you're like, wow, that side effect is coming out and I didn't have that before. Mm-hmm. And that's a signal for it to work with your doctor and start, um, you know, taking less of it. And so may, I get many parents coming, bringing their child in saying they want to get their child off the ADAD, ADHD medication. And we don't know what the long-term effects on a young brain are for these medications. As it's developing. You know As what it's I, developing. I always use this my example. Like I'm addicted to Carmex and lipstick. Literally. I mean, it's been so many years that my own lips have not had to make any lubrication that, you know, I don't even bother trying. If I got stuck on a desert island, I'd be in big trouble. My whole lips would just fall off. Uh, and so I think of medication is that way. The de- brain is developing and we're letting it rely on meds to make neurotransmitters function when the brain might have developed past that. Well, our brain is an electrochemical uh, organ mm-hmm. and medication only is speaking to the chemical communication but in our brain. Mm. And the truth is we need both. And, exactly. you know, like our heart beats with an electrical current, our, so does our brain function. And we know that neurofeedback helps um, regulate that electrochemical uh, communication and it uh, equalizes the neurotransmitters. Susan Smiley, always a pleasure to be with you. You said you're not a medical doctor, but I need to brag. She learned all this at Harvard, okay? She went to Harvard uh, and does work with medical doctors. Her website is The Balanced Brain, The Balanced, past tense, brain.com. Susan, so nice to have you here. Thank you so much. We'll Wendy. talk again soon. When we come back, uh, let's talk about you. And your success in life. Can you define your own success or do you need the world to tell you what success is? You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. KFI AM 640. You have the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show in your ears. I want to talk about something. I posted on my Instagram. By the way, you can follow me all over social media. The handle is the same, just DR, you know, the short form for doctor, DR Wendy Walsh. Wendy, like Peter Pan, Walsh, W A L S H. And it is the same on Facebook, on Instagram, on that Twitter. But be nice. I'm all about trying to be nice on social media. Um, but I posted a inf- infogram. Is that a word? You know, they have a box with a bunch of words in it from somebody else's, somewhere I found on the internet, and I loved it. It said, happiness is the new rich. Inner peace is the new success. Health is the new wealth. And kindness is the new cool. And I got a lot of response on social media. People said, I love this. I'm going to frame this. This is great. And I realized that so many of us live with the pressure to be somebody else's definition of success. You know, you've heard the old adage, you're supposed to be thin, rich, and beautiful. Focus on the rich, right? And I think part of that comes from just modern American capitalist idea that if you make enough money, then you should be okay. Well, a lot of people learn that once they make the money they've always dreamed about, 
that they're not any happier than they were before. And other people go, well, I can't possibly reach that ideal because not everybody is going to be at the top of the heap, right? And as we age and move across a lifespan, people tend to assess and reassess and say, you know, have I reached my goals? Am I as successful as I should be by this age? I don't know how we create these arbitrary things, but we start to think about what success is. Now, here's the good news. Research shows that happiness across the lifespan goes in a U. So children tend to be real happy, especially if they come from great families and have parents who uh, help them with their needs. And of course, laughing, giggling babies, who doesn't love those, right? And it creates an environmental feedback loop. So childhood is a pretty happy, easy time into adolescence, uh, no mortgages to pay, no big stresses, your laundry done for you, food on the table. Life is pretty peachy. Then in the middle part of life, life gets really stressful. You're raising kids. You're building careers. You're dealing with aging parents. You're um, getting fired. You're getting divorced. You're losing your aging parents. Your kids are tough to raise, right? And before you know it, the middle years show the lowest rates of reported happiness and well-being across the lifespan. But here's my favorite research. After the age of 50, happiness starts to shoot up again. And I will tell you that I can totally attest to this because I have a half-empty nest, which means I have one kid still in the nest, but she just turned 15. So, I mean, what does she want now? Wheels and a wallet, right? It's not like she needs me attending to her at every moment. Hopefully all the lessons I've given her are in her old noggin, and she's going to make some good decisions now. Uh, And then with one gone... I'm just like, wow, I'm so, I feel free and I feel so happy and accomplished that knock on wood, my kids are healthy and we're doing okay. I have focused a lot on my health because, you know, if you heard the first part of the show, my parents died when I was 30 and I was like my age I am now. So I'm very obsessed with health and um, I enjoy traveling and I enjoy the little things, being with friends, the social support. And I could honestly say, that I'm almost, almost there. I'm almost the happiest I've ever been in my life. So bear with me. There's one other thing. People have always said this about me, that I'm an outsider, that I define my happiness by myself. And I think a lot of this is attributed to the fact that because we grew up military and we moved all the time and I was always going to new schools, I was always the new kid in the class, I didn't have to uh, bow to social pressure. I could come in as the new, cool, interesting kid with weird-shaped jeans from the other city's school, and suddenly I'm a trendsetter and everybody's adopting whatever I'm wearing, right? So because I'm an extrovert, it was easy for me to move into a social situation and go, no, no, this is the cool thing we do now, right? So I was kind of a leader. And so as a result, I never felt like, oh, you know, you have to make this amount of money. You have to have this size of house. You have to have this or that. I never had those thoughts. I tended to be more open and exploring of new things, and I tended to self-define. Now, there's a psychological piece to this, too, besides my life experience, is that some people tend to be externalizers. In other words, they believe that their lot in life is entirely the result of what goes on outside of them. In other words, it's stuff that happens, right? And it is out of their control. Um, These people 
have a really hard time because they suffer from a lot of anxiety and depression because they're like, oh, I can't catch a break. Oh, just my luck. Those are the kinds of things they say. Then there are other people on another extreme who believe that they have too much internal responsibility. They take responsibility for everything. They're like, oh, it's all my fault that this happened. Oh, I should have done this differently, right? And they have their own brand of anxiety and depression. I think I lie somewhere in the middle, which is I'm like, yeah, some stuff is out of my control. But if there's a wall in front of me, my job is to figure out how to get over the wall, around the wall, dig a hole under the wall, and I can do this. If I can't get around that wall, I don't go to a place of, oh, I couldn't figure it out. There's something wrong with me. I look to the right or the left and go, there must be another route where there are no walls, right? That's just how I think. And so I'm very lucky that I do define my own success on my own terms. And it allows me to be a lot more free and have a lot more happiness. So I have a few tips on ways that you can better define success for yourself. I mean, success that doesn't involve salary, that doesn't inv- that involves some kind of self-identity that you create that feels good to you. And the first thing is, ask yourself what your values are when it comes to work. You know, you can just work and get on that treadmill and work and work and work and work and fill up every day. Or you can say to yourself, what are my workplace values to put in the best job that I can, to put in the required hours, to maybe go that extra mile if you're that person, to to have a better work-life balance. Maybe you can pride yourself if you're not all the way at the top to say, you know what? I may not be at the top salary-wise, but I have a great work-life balance, and I have fabulous weekends and fabulous friends, and I'm really involved with my kids. Secondly, find a role model. I do this all the time. I look to other people and go, oh, they're different. They're interesting. That's cool. So your role model might be a family member, a friend, a former colleague, colleague, somebody in the media, um, and look to them and go, that's how they define. That's how I want to define. And finally, what impact do you have? Where is the meaning in your life? Ask yourself, which activities in your life bring you joy? May not be work, and that's okay. Your work can be the thing that supplements the meaning in your life. No matter what, you cannot define yourself, however, unless you have good self-esteem. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about the factors that influence your self-esteem and figure out ways that you can learn to like yourself just a little bit better. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We are into the home stretch of the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Please feel free to follow me on social media. Um, it's all Dr. Wendy Walsh. You know, when I was, when I first had my kids, some people would criticize me when they were little because if there are two extremes of parenting, one being more authoritarian and the other being more permissive and an extreme of either we know is pretty unhealthy for kids. The truth is we all lie on a scale somewhere. I would say that I lie a little closer to the permissive side and I also praised my kids and do a lot. I didn't know the research, uh, and this week I was contacted by oh, some magazine about a new study asking me to comment on it, showing that 
kids who have really critical parents tend to be more emotionally avoidant and less able to read emotions on people's faces when they grow up. Hmm, what could the correlation be? Maybe that criticism, that sharp tongue from mommy or daddy hurt so much that they had to block out the emotional content too. And as a result, they weren't good at reading people and picking up on emotional stuff. So when it came to raising my kids, I was definitely more on the praising side. Um, Not that there weren't boundaries, and I believe me, every parent has a critical tongue when they need to. Um, But I look at how well my kids are doing with self-esteem because my theory was this, and I think it's more than a theory, that if one just likes themselves, then the world is their oyster. They will be confident to take risks, to reach out to people, to, you know, call people for potential job prospects. They're not going to sit at home and go, oh, they probably wouldn't hire me anyway, right? They're going to say, yeah, that's a cool job. I know I don't have all the qualifications, but let me get in there and wow them, right? That's the attitude of somebody who likes themselves. But I find too many people have really low self-esteem. Now, it's also dangerous to have self-esteem that's way too high. I mean, some serial killers have very high self-esteem, by the way. They think they can do no wrong. Some narcissists actually have high self-esteem. But we all, I think many, many of us, could stand to like ourselves a little better because that tends to be the backbone when the storms of life come along, when there is conflict going on. Because the very nature of being a human being and getting through life is you're going to have conflict. You can have family conflict, you can have divorce, you can have workplace conflict. It comes up, right? That's, otherwise, we'd have no attorneys making no money if we didn't have conflict. That's just what human beings do. But when the conflict is happening, you want to not buckle and go, oh, oh you know, I'm going to lose. This is terrible. You want to still be strong and have a backbone. So let's talk about some of the factors that influence people's self-esteem. The first one I already mentioned, childhood. Your childhood is probably your main influence on self-esteem. When you're growing up, there were people who said things to you and you logged it in the back of your brain as gospel, whether it was a critical parent, a teacher, uh, mean bullies on the playground. That stuff just sits in you and becomes kind of hardwired. And it is possible to overcome it and to replace negative thinking with positive thoughts. You can literally change your world by simply getting up in the morning and saying, Ah, I like myself. I know it sounds silly, but you can do that. I like myself. I'm a good person. Say that to yourself. And you will, you will be that, by the way. Um, other things that affect your self-esteem. Society. The pressures of society. Everyone pressured to live a certain way, have a certain kind of job, have a certain kind of friends, eat a certain kind of food. All these pressures can lead to emotional despair. So this is when you have to adopt the idea of, no, no, I want to live like this. Listen, let's be honest. Way back when, when I was a local news anchor, I was watching my friends buy big houses and be trapped in a news studio for 40 hours a week. I bought a little apartment building where I lived in part of it. And when times were tough, I lived in smaller apartments of it. And times were great, I lived up in the penthouse. And I moved up and down with some flexibility. I never had a house. I said... To my therapist one time when my kids are babies, I need to buy a house. I need to work more so I can buy a house. They need a yard. They need a house. And she said, you know, a baby's home is a mother's body. So why don't you be there for them instead? So instead, 
look how I reframed things. All my friends are still in their mansions, although they've been stuck on news sets for 30 years while I've had freedom. Um, And now I say, oh, I live in cool Venice, right? I, I made coolness out of my life. I was an early adopter. No, it was the only thing I could afford 20 years ago. It just got cool around me. I was lucky. But you can take society's idea and reframe it into your idea. Now, another thing that affects self-esteem is our media. And this is a big one, especially social social media. Studies have shown that there is a correlation between depression and high social media use. Although I do want to say something. I do believe that people who are suffering from depression tend to go to social media to look for connection. Because one of the ways we alleviate ourselves from depression is through social support. So I think they go there looking for a computer version of social support. And because they've gone there already feeling depressed... Then they see everybody's fabulous life because who puts a picture on Facebook that's not gorgeous, right? And so social media can really affect us. Also beliefs. So I want to say this gently. You know, research shows that religion actually can extend your life and uh, you can be healthier along the way. Religion supplies social support, uh, meaning for life. It, um, you know, every religion has some form of chanting, whether it's saying the Hail Mary over and over, saying, um... However, sometimes religions cause this idea that you need to fit into a box to fit in. And you may not fit into all the rules that the religion you were raised in gave you. And that can cause low self-esteem. And the big one, let me end here with the big one, romantic involvements. You know, every relationship we have enlivens a piece of us. You change because of the relationship you're in. And if you're in a relationship that involves a lot of criticism, a lot of put-downs, you will start to enliven that and to be that. And that's why it's very important that we choose our romantic relationships carefully. Being happy, being in a loving, supportive relationship can boost your self-esteem better than anything. And being in a negative relationship can diminish you. So if you're thinking of breaking up or not, I ask you to ask yourself this question. Who am I in this relationship? Who have I become in this relationship? And that will let you know if you should stay or you should go. Well, that brings the Dr. Wendy Walsh show to a close. It's always a pleasure being with you. Every Sunday, I'm here from 4 to 6. And on Wednesday afternoons in the 1 o'clock hour with Gary and Shannon, keep in touch with me during the week. You can go to my website, drwendywalsh.com. You can go to any of my uh, social media. I'm pretty open, Dr. Wendy Walsh. I can't respond to everybody all the time, but I try to. And uh, thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to be with you on Sundays. You've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640.